The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. Everybody's here this morning and joining us online. Uh, we are continuing our study in the Gospel of John. We're up to the seventh chapter, and I think you're going to enjoy this lesson because we've got some neat stuff to talk about. Uh, Pastor Greg has been preaching for the last three Sundays out of uh, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And so uh, even though he was not uh, preaching this morning on uh, Daniel chapter 6, I found myself in my quiet time this week focusing on Daniel chapter 6. A uh, very, very famous story uh, that not only has been uh, a source of fascination for me over the years, but it's also been a source of encouragement. And as I studied Daniel chapter 6 this week, uh, looking at Daniel in the lion's den, I noticed the parallels with our passage in John chapter 7. Because in John chapter 7, we see Jesus in his lion's den. Everyone he's going to encounter in chapter 7, 8, and 9 are going to be people attempting to destroy him, mock him, uh, not believe in him, try to kill him, and it draws some great life lesson parallels I'll give as we go through it. But as we talk about the brothers that are opposed to him, as we talk about the citizens that are opposed to him, as we talk about the Jewish leaders that are opposed to him, think of him in the same context as Daniel in the lion's den. He's there with God the Father's supernatural protection. You see that throughout Scripture, and I think you'll see some encouragement as we apply it to our lives. We start in John chapter 7 and verse 1. It starts out by saying, after this, Jesus traveled in Galilee. This is referring to John chapter 6, which took place in the springtime. You may remember from John 6, there's a reference to the Passover. We are now six months later. Six months later, we don't know what happens from John, except he says Jesus traveled. We know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a whole lot of things happened. We know there was healings of lepers. We know there was healings of the blind and the deaf. We know that there was uh, the feeding of the 4,000 men, the second feeding of the multitude. Uh, most famously, we know that was the time period when Jesus uh, was on the Mount of Transfiguration, and three of his inner circle saw him uh, there along with uh, the, the transformation that he went through. My point is that it's a time of discipleship. We see two days of dealing with the masses. We see months of discipleship with his followers. In his entire three-year ministry, the Gospels record 30 days. So two years and 11 months not recorded was one-on-one -on -one time with the disciples. I didn't want to pass this without pointing out Jesus' focus was not on the number of people following him. It was not on the number of uh, total conversions, people that went off and did their own thing afterwards. It was built on genuine discipleship. Great little cross-reference, Colossians 1, 28. Paul writes, He, Christ, is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. This idea of making people around us fully mature is what Jesus models 
what Paul teaches and what we, if we're going to be faithful, are supposed to do. It's why I do this every week. This is my attempt to disciple you guys as opposed to just showing up and teaching once a month or once every couple of weeks. It's a method of discipleship, which is why I teach the way I do. There's a whole bunch of classes here in church where uh, if people want to go and talk, there's a place for them to do that. And here we don't do that because the goal is teaching and discipleship. One of our applications here is the measure of any church's success is not the size of its congregation, but the depth of its discipleship. And that's measured by replication. Do the people just show up for entertainment and leave, just show up for their own personal edification, or do they do something with it? Do they get plugged into other ministries? Do they get plugged into helping other people? Our class does that. I think that's the ultimate sign of health. Our church does that. That's the ultimate sign of our church's health. Verse 2, it says, Jesus did not want to travel in Judea, that's the southern province, because the Jews were trying to kill him. We're going to see this build throughout chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 as there's a more uh, vocalized challenge. But Jesus is not going to be crucified for another six months. Passover in the spring. We're now in the preceding fall at this festival we're going to talk about. But the point is he knew there were people who wanted him dead. Great little life lesson there. Although Christians never need to fear death, Obedience requires that we do those things needed to avoid unnecessary danger and stay healthy. I see this manifested in two ways, and I mention it here because it's the first side of a coin we're going to talk about with theological principles about how we deal with threats to our health and threats to our life. The first side of the coin is this one. That although we don't need to fear death, our obedience requires us to be wise. Our obedience requires us to be wise to those things to avoid unnecessary danger and stay healthy. In other words, while you could colloquially say that you can dance through a field of landmines and not worry if it's God's not time to bring you home, one of the realities may be God wants to take you out of here because of your stupidity. (laughs) So we don't dance through a field of landmines. It also means we don't look at our health conditions and our doctors and say, well, I don't need to go to the doctor because if God wants to bring me home, he's going to bring me home. Just like God gave Paul Dr. Luke, he gives us doctors to take care of us. And I can't tell you how many times I have heard people, particularly in later stages of life, say, I'm not going to have that procedure done. I'm not going to do that. If it's my time to go, it's my time to go. I think that is you playing God. If God's giving you access to medical resources and to technology and to medicine, obedience is you do what the people God's put in your life tell you to do. You don't say, no, I'm going to play God myself and I'm just going to stop taking my medicine or stop seeing my doctor. Jesus knew God had a timetable and the crucifixion would be on God's timetable. He was still wise enough to say, I'm not going to go into Judea right now because people are trying to kill me. I'll go when God says it's the time to go. So we do what Jesus did. We avoid unnecessary danger. We do what we're supposed to do to stay healthy. The end of verse number two, or actually the start of verse number two, the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near. Now, I got to stop and talk about this because at the end of the lesson, this is the big, big thing you got to understand. This is one of the three of the major festivals within Judaism then and to some extent today. In Jesus' time, the three big ones were Passover, Pentecost, 
in tabernacles, also known as booths. Passover and Pentecost are in the spring. Tabernacles, or the festival of booths, is in the fall. Uh, by the lunar calendar, it's typically the middle of September through the middle of October. Sukkot is what it's called in Judaism. And it is a celebration. It's the biggest party of all the Jewish festivals because they're celebrating how God brought them, brought the children of Israel through the desert. And they commemorate that over a seven day celebration period by building booths or building tabernacles, which doesn't mean a church. It means a place to inhabit. So back in Jesus day, it would have been something that looks like this. It would have been a booth or a tabernacle that would have had some wood sides, uh, probably some, uh, uh, I don't want to call it wheat, but it'd be like stalks around it, maybe up on the roof. Uh, today, it would be more in terms of tents. A lot of my Jewish friends today just put tents in the backyard. If you go to Jerusalem between September and October when they're celebrating Sukkot, you will see this. They build with plywood and wood things on the balcony of their apartments. You can see those up on the second, third floor there. And it's hard to walk through the streets without seeing people's booths or their tabernacles because that's how they celebrate them. They go into it at night. There's a lot of festivities. They celebrate. And I'm going to explain at the end of the lesson how it was celebrated in Jesus' day and what they did, because it is a jaw-dropping experience when you contemplate the timing of what Jesus did and what he said. But that's the introduction. Now, the first group of lions that he encounters are his own family. Verse 3, his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see the works you are doing, for no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So John records his brothers, and then John editorializes so we can see that they're not encouraging brothers, they're disbelieving lions that want him to fail. They're mocking him. If you want an Old Testament picture, this is Joseph's brothers in the house of Jacob saying, Hey, you got dreams to rule, where's your kingdom? Go out there and rule, Mr. Ruler. Go out there and uh, rule, dream boy. And Jesus' brothers are doing the exact same thing. They've not seen the miracles. They've not heard anything except what Mary might have told them or what others have said to them. And they're mocking him saying, yeah, if you're going to be the king, if you're going to do miracles, go out there and do it. Let everybody see you. They didn't believe in him. First life lesson. Because familiarity often breeds contempt. It is frequently more difficult to share God's truth with those who know you the best. They want to filter and see your worst. They don't want to hear your truth. And so sometimes it's really, really hard to witness to family. It's really, really hard to witness that people that may have known you since elementary school or high school. So often because familiarity makes them see the worst in us or bring us down to our lowest common denominator, Jesus gives us the illustration that during his lifetime, he couldn't even convert his brothers. He's got four brothers, at least two sisters, and during his lifetime, every single one of them mock him. 
They don't study him. They don't listen to him. They don't go to a synagogue when he's preaching. They're not even at the crucifixion. They ignored him for all three years of his ministry. Now, I got to stop here for just a second, because if I'm talking about brothers and sisters, it will pop up in somebody's mind about something they may have heard from our Catholic friends. Our Catholic friends, uh, and once again, as I said last week, don't take this as anti-Catholic. Don't take this as a, as a comment that our Catholic brothers and sisters aren't going to be with us in heaven. It's a comment on historical Catholic doctrine. And the issue was marry a perpetual virgin which requires you to interpret the New Testament that Jesus had no brothers, Jesus had no sisters. If you cross-reference a couple of verses, Matthew 27 at the crucifixion references Mary at the cross along with Mary Magdalene, along with her sister Mary, and it said, or her cousin Mary, and it says that uh, in Matthew 27 that Mary, Jesus' mother, is there, and she identifies them as the mother of, of James and Joseph, two of his other brothers. In Matthew 1.25, it doesn't describe Jesus being born as their only son. It describes them as uh, Jesus being born as the first of their sons or the firstborn. Cross-reference in the New Testament, Galatians 1.19. Paul says, but I did not see any of the other apostles when he went to Jerusalem except James, the Lord's brother. Now, when it uses the word brother here, when it uses the word brother in the New Testament Gospels, it's using the Greek word for familial brother. There is a word for buddy that's different. There's a word for a guy that you know that is different. There's a word for stepbrother that's different. There's a word for cousin that's different. So the word for brother means familial, blood brother, and that's the way the Gospels use it. Also cross-reference, Acts chapter 1-4, they all join together, constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. This is a reference to the post-resurrection experience. Once Jesus appeared to his brothers, they believed. So where did this idea come from that, Jesus, that, that Mary was a perpetual virgin and did not have any other children? It comes from a Gnostic gospel written about 200 years after Jesus was alive called the Infancy Gospel of James. James, the brother of Jesus, didn't write it. No one named James wrote it. Uh, A Gnostic writer wrote it, stuck the name on it, thinking it would help in its popularity. That is a copy of one of the oldest uh, uh, versions we have of it written in Greek. You can buy it today if you want to read it, but it's fiction, so I don't highly recommend it. Fast forward another 300 years, and at a place called the Council of Constantinople in 533, the Catholic Church for the first time said, as a matter of doctrine, we believe Mary was a virgin for entire life. Uh, And if time permitted, I could give you all the reasons why they wanted to do that. But I simply wanted to point out that there's no biblical support for that. It's based on papal decree. The brothers of Jesus are named by name. James, who became the leader of the church at Jerusalem and wrote the book in your Bible that carries his name. Judas, also called Jude also became a leader in the church. And the little tiny book in your Bible right before Revelation bears his name. He's also got a brother named Joseph. He's also got a brother named Simon. He's got at least two sisters because his sisters, although not identified, are always described in the plural. 
So there's at least more than one. So we know there were at least uh, seven in the family. Uh, and after the resurrection, the New Testament fathers, the New Testament church leaders tell us that every single one of them saw him and every single one of them believe him. I think it's one of the greatest evidences in the New Testament from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that describes those who saw Jesus. It's the famous passage that says 500 people saw him uh, after his resurrection. It identifies James, his brother, as the reason for his conversion. And the reason that's significant to me is you can fool a lot of people a lot of the time, but you can't fool your baby brother. (laughs) He knows the stories of your childhood. He knows what you did with him. He knows how you talk. He knows how you look. He knows how you laugh. He knows how you smile. So when James goes from being a non-believer and after Jesus' crucifixion, the leader of the family and says, I am now going to stop my career and I'm going to follow him and I'm now going to be a preacher in Jerusalem to the same people that killed my brother. That is not a delusion. That's based on a brother knowing that a brother really did rise from the dead. To me, it's the greatest evidence of uh, of the proof of Jesus' resurrection that exists in all the New Testament. Continuing our study in verse 4, when it talks about no one does anything in secret, it's clearly mocking him, and then Jesus transitions in verse 6 and says in both verse 6 and verse 8, my time has not yet arrived. He says to his brothers, you can do anything you want. You're not on a timetable. I've got a timetable of God, and my time has not yet arrived. This morning, Pastor Greg talked about Daniel and the 70 weeks of Daniel as God's calendar and God's timetable. We see it here again. Jesus is operating on God's timetable. Great little life lesson for us that unlike ourselves, God doesn't make decisions because he's suddenly confronted with with an unseen issue. He determines both the problems and the solutions in advance. Because of that omniscience, as such, we can rest in him and trust in him for the ordering of our lives. God knows what our next week looks like when we don't. He knows what our next month looks like when we don't. He knows what our next decade looks like when we don't. That ought to shape your prayer. That ought to shape how you approach him for the ministry and the relationship issues you have going forward. Because we rest in him, we trust in him, not knowing how long the road is that we're on and not knowing how it's going to change. The very end of verse 9 says, after he had said these things, he stayed in Galilee. Now, I've had people point out to me this is a contradiction because Jesus stays in Galilee in verse 9, but then immediately thereafter he's going to Judea, he's going to Jerusalem. It was a passage of a couple of days for a couple of reasons. There was something he wanted to do, and in particular, I think what he wanted to do was to go through Samaria. Because remember, when all of his brothers and everybody else is going down to Jerusalem, remember the path they took is around Samaria, which lie lie in between Jerusalem and Galilee. So in verse 10 says, after his brothers had gone up, that's the way you would describe climbing up the mountain to uh, Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, Mount Zion. It says, then he also went up, not openly, but secretly. 
What it's describing here, we see a cross-reference to in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 is describing the exact same time period, and it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up to Jerusalem, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he's walking in that direction. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Remember when I taught you the story of the woman at the well, the woman in Samaria. Jesus went at that time from Jerusalem up into Samaria, and we talked about how the Jews would have gone west to walk around it by the, by the Mediterranean, or they would have gone east by the Jordan to walk around Samaria because they viewed them as despicable half-breeds and they wouldn't even set foot inside their land. Jesus wanted to minister to them. He walked right through it. So his brother's path and all the citizens of, of Galilee's path would have been much longer going around. It would have been an extra two days. So Jesus stays in Galilee to witness, to disciple, and then he wants to spend some time in Samaria. So he walks through Samaria. It's more direct. It continues in verse 12. They get into Jerusalem, and it jumps into verse 12. There's lots of discussion about him among the crowds. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people. Still, nobody was talking publicly about him because they feared the Jews. Now, let me stop here and draw a reference. When it refers to the Jews, that's not the way John refers to all of the people nationally. That's John's shorthand for the leaders of the Jews. That's how John colloquially describes the Pharisees, the people in the high priesthood, the people who are Sadducees. That's how he describes the leaders, their legislative, judicial, religious body. That's not how he describes the people. He describes the people as the crowd, the multitude, those around him, he describes it in a generic way. The Jews is a reference to the leadership. So when it says there's a crowd in verse 12, some saying he's a good man, some say he's deceiving people. They're saying about Jesus the exact same thing they say today. Some say he's a great man. He's a good guy for wisdom. He's a good guy for the Muslims would say a good prophet. Others would say, nope, he was a deceiver. He really wasn't the Messiah. That's what Jews would say today. Uh, it is interesting to me that among those that look at Jesus, then and today, you can't just say he's a good man. He said repeatedly, I am God. I am from God. I am the Messiah. That's not a good man if that's not true. If it is true, he's more than a good man. If it's not true, he's not a good man. So you get down to this issue really quickly of truth, and he's either exactly who he says it is, or as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, he's a liar or a lunatic. And as I taught you a few weeks ago, there's no room to argue he's a liar or a lunatic given the evidence of what he did. Now, look how it transitions. It says, when the festival was already half over, remember I told you it's a seven-day festival. This would have been the fourth day because on the eighth day, the first day after the festival ends, something really, really big is going to happen. So on the fourth day, right in the middle of all the, the celebration of booths they're doing, Jesus went up into the temple complex and began to teach. So to give you an idea, this is a recreation of what the temple would have looked like. The Holy of Holies is in the big building there in the middle. 
the courtyard outside of it's where the t where the altar was, where the laver was. Everything around it was called the court of the Gentiles. When Jesus ran the money makers out of the temple, that's where they were set up. When Jesus goes to preach, that's where he would have preached. At the time this is going on, there would have been about 200,000 people in Jerusalem in town for this eight-day ceremony. Seven days of the festival, the day afterwards for something I'm going to describe to you that they went through. When he goes in to preach, he's up there in the, the court of the Gentiles on one side or the other. And so thousands and thousands could have crowded around him and heard him, even though there would have been merchants up there doing the things that the merchants did. Notice how it says at the end when they respond, the Jews, that's the Jewish leaders, were amazed as he's teaching and they say, how does he know the scriptures since he hasn't been trained? Why did they say that? In Jerusalem at the time, there were three what we would call colleges. There were three old Jewish men that would have students that would pay them money and for the rest of their lives, they taught college. They taught Bible. They taught politics. They taught Jewish history. Paul studied under one of these guys named Gamaliel. Uh, there was another school of Hillel. There was another third school, and people went to him based on what they could afford, based on whether, whether their family was super orthodox or just somewhat orthodox. And the point of these guys was Jesus has not been to college. He doesn't come out of one of these three schools like we all did. So what's his pedigree to teach? Now, we know Jesus' pedigree was he's God. He understood directly from the Father what he was supposed to say. For us, it's still an issue today, just like it was for them. What's your pedigree to talk to me about God? There's a great little life lesson here. Life lesson is be careful of imposing pedigree standards on others, especially those in ministry. The standard is the teaching and modeling of biblical truth, not academic degrees. It does not require in our church, for example, that you have a PhD in theology or biblical studies to be on staff here. Greg doesn't hire based on pedigrees, although a lot of churches do. Uh, there are uh, there is a focus on someone's ability to model and teach biblical truth. It doesn't look at them and say, what's your pedigree? I have had friends criticize Greg for not having a Ph.D. I've had friends criticize people on staff for not having an MDiv degree, a master's of biblical divinity. Um the illustration it gives here is that while in certain circumstances and certain job requirements, the training education you go through is unquestionably important. Be careful of pedigree standards when you gauge whether or not someone is appropriate to teach you Bible because the criticism of Jesus gives us a warning not to have pedigree standards, but instead to focus on biblical truth and not academic degrees. We continue in verse 16. Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but is from the one who sent me. So Jesus makes it really clear. What I'm teaching you, I did not learn from man. I learned from God because it's clear in everything he says is talking about God. It's coming from God. 
He says, if anyone wants to do his will, he will understand whether or not the teaching is from God or if I'm speaking on my own. The one who speaks for himself seeks his own glory. Jesus is drawing a dichotomy that says, be very, very careful for someone who is doing something other than quoting scripture. Because it either comes directly from God, which he's saying was true for him, or it's mankind making it up. And he draws this dichotomy and says the person who speaks for himself is just speaking for their own ego, for their own glory, for their own success. Great little life lesson for us in the 21st century is be wary of anyone claiming to have received a direct revelation of new truth from God. Do not get me wrong. God guides us in our decision-making. God can lead us into open and closed doors providentially, vocationally, relationally, and a bunch of other things. I am not saying God doesn't lead us as his children. But the warning is be careful of anyone claiming to have received an audible or visual direct revelation of new truth. In other words, it's not in the Bible from God. Because when God speaks to us and guides us, one of the tests is whether it's God communicating with us versus indigestion or our own imagination is whether it's consistent with Scripture. If it's consistent with Scripture, if it's consistent with the way God's uh, wise friends around us counsel us, then we can get some confirmation it's from God. If someone stands up and says, I've heard God's voice, he spoke to me, or I've seen a vision, it ought to set off alarm bells. As an illustration of how dangerous this is, let me give you a 2019-2020 religious-slash-political example of how this manifested in our own culture, in our own country. That's Jeremiah Johnson. He stood up in 2019 to his congregation, which is a Pentecostal charismatic congregation, and said, God audibly spoke to me in a vision and told me President Trump would win the 2020 election. He then proceeded to write three books and sell three books to the masses about his, his vision from God. On January 7th of 2021, he's doing some massive backpedaling. Because the problem is either the speaker looks delusional or God looks like a liar. Either scenario is bad. When someone says, I've got a new word from God, here's what God's vision is to me, here's what it is, I'm God's prophet, and it doesn't happen. That's why you got to be careful, and you really, really got to be careful that that's how you communicate with other people. Not making a political comment, just illustrating all the backpedaling this guy had to do after January 7th, after he told the entire world his new word from God. John 7, verses 19, Jesus is still speaking. He says, didn't Moses give you the law? That none of you keeps the law. Why do you want to kill me? They responded, you have a demon, the crowd responds you, who wants to kill you? Now, notice how the lion's den that he in starts to uh, fall apart, right? The first thing you get is some saying he's a good man. The other side is, oh no, he's deceiving us. Then Jesus says, you've got the law of Moses and you can't even keep it. And their response is, hey, buddy, be careful. I think you're a demon. 
as soon as Jesus confronts them with reality, they bow up and they're ready to start throwing rocks at him. They're calling him a demon and the punishment in Judaism for being a demonic was to kill them if they could catch them. And so when the crowd now turns on him, you start to see the lion's den is getting a little restless. It says in verse 21, Jesus says, I did one work and you're all amazed. He's referring to healing the man uh, on the Sabbath that was down at the pool that I talked to you about a couple of weeks ago. Consider this, Moses has given you circumcision, you circumcise the man on the Sabbath. If a man receives a circumcision on the Sabbath, so the law of Moses won't be broken. Are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Stop judging according to outward appearances, rather judge according to righteous judgment. Jesus is basically saying your law allows you to do a circumcision if a baby's born and the day for circumcision falls on the Sabbath. Jesus says that's working. You've got exceptions to your Sabbath rule. Jesus says, I healed a man and he's still walking in your crowd today. And yet that somehow is violating the Sabbath day. See, the problem with the law is it never elevated man up to the law. Mankind brought the law down to man. Because the Mishnah is 27 English volumes of rules interpreting Ten Commandments. 27 volumes, for example, on the Sabbath of what you're supposed to do with a cup of soup or a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. It was work to stir it. It was not work to ladle it left to right. Does that make any sense? No. But by having all of these 27 volumes of law, they didn't elevate man to a higher standard of righteousness. They brought the law down so you wouldn't worry about, am I working? Oh, no, I'm not stirring. I'm ladling it left to right. We hear that and laugh, but there are practicing Jews today still caught up with bringing the law down in a way to work. It's why when you go to the Upper East Side of New York, there are Sabbath elevators. On Saturday, the elevator stops at every floor so you don't have to work and push the button. There are Sabbath lights so that you don't have to work by turning the light switch on. They automatically come on and go off on the Sabbath based on what you think you're going to do. They still have rules that bring the law down, not elevate up to a standard of righteousness. That's what Jesus is criticizing them for. He says in verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, isn't this the man they want to kill? They want to kill. Yet look, he's publicly speaking and they're saying nothing to him. Could it be true that the authorities know he's the Messiah? Verse 27, but we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Now, one of, what, one of the things you've got to understand about this is they're quoting Jewish tradition. There was a saying based on a misinterpretation of one verse in Isaiah and a misinterpretation of one verse in Jeremiah that the Messiah would be an unknown, a person of unknown origin. He would just show up and be the Messiah. They wouldn't know where he's from. This crowd looked at him and goes, that's the carpenter's boy from Nazareth. We know exactly who he is. And since we know he's the carpenter's boy from Nazareth, he can't be the Messiah because his origin is known, not unknown. It's an illustration on the dangers of people that take tradition and out of ignorance put it on the same level as scripture. Life lesson. 
Beware of people who, despite good intention, give advice or encouragement based on trite human traditions rather than scripture. Example, I can't tell you how many times I've had people approach me, including at my father's funeral in this very building a couple of months ago, when they put their hands around me with the greatest of intention and says, Chris, we know God won't give you anything you can't handle. And I bit my tongue because they think they're quoting scripture and I'm dying to say, tell me where that is because I've never seen it in the Bible. But there are people that elevate human tradition because that saying, God will never give you something you can't handle, is not biblical. It's not scripture. It's a human tradition that's just trite. The truth is, biblically, God gives us on a daily basis stuff we can't handle because it keeps us close to him. If the biblical truth was God never gives us stuff we can't handle, we'd never go to God. We'd live life just totally without him because he gives us stuff we can handle on our own. So you got to be really, really careful. If somebody's going to quote to you some trite tradition, either bite your tongue or say, where is that, where is that in scripture? Because I've never seen that before. And I hear this all the time. Be careful. Verse 28, as he's teaching in the temple complex, Jesus cried out, you know me and you know where I'm from, yet I've not come on my own. The one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I'm from him. He sent me. And then they tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had yet come. Notice when it says Jesus cried out. Despite the danger, despite the threat, despite the murmuring, this is basically saying Jesus is speaking with the loudest voice he can preach with so that everybody in the temple complex can hear him. He's basically yelling his sermon. And he says, you don't know God. You don't know the one that sent me. And then it says down there at the very end, then they tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. This is the picture of Jesus in the lion's den of Jerusalem. They want to kill him. He's just said, you self-righteous people do not know the God you worship. You've not heard from him. You're not doing what he says. You don't recognize the Messiah. You are lost from God. They tried to seize him. In other words, the Jewish leaders gave an order, arrest him. Yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Meaning just like Daniel, protected by God from the lions, it's a picture of God protecting Jesus from the lions there in the temple courtyard. Great life lesson for us. With God, there is no such thing as an accidental death. As such, we shouldn't live our lives in fear of how or when we will die. I have friends where the husband and the wife will not fly on the same airplane out of fear if one of the, if the plane goes down, their children are orphans. So they go through this long ordeal of flying separate days or separate flights. They're not on the same plane. I know people today that will not get on an airplane because of the fear I might accidentally die. I have people I've known in my life that will not drive on an interstate. They drive residential because they might die on the interstate. Those are people that don't understand that while we're not supposed to be careless, we're not supposed to dance through the field of landmines, we're not supposed to ignore our doctors, that if it's not our time on God's timetable, 
anything we do is protected from death because God's got a plan for us. I didn't understand this until I was an adult. And I will share with you a story from about 25 years ago when I was working on a case for two rich Russians. My Russian was from Belarus. The other side of the case was a Russian from Moscow. We didn't realize it at the time, but once we got into the case, we realized that my guy was a leader in the Belarusian mafia, and the other guy was a leader in the Russian mafia. I learned this when the Houston director of the CIA showed up unannounced in my office, who I had never met, never heard of, and says, you can't go to depositions in Moscow next month. And my first reaction was, how did you know about that? And he said, because there's a contract on your life. The little mafias didn't like the lawyers on either side. And the Russian mafia, the head of the Houston CIA said, has a contract out to kill you, Chris Martin. He then said, don't worry, they've never killed anybody in the United States. <laughs> but we can't protect you in Russia. Right. So I'm totally freaked out. The CIA knows I've got depositions in Russia, meaning they're monitoring some level of communication and knowing that for the first time in my adult life, literally someone wants to kill me. I went straight to Daniel and the lion's den. I went straight to John chapter seven, because those two stories are the ultimate proof that even though you think somebody may hate you so bad, they want to kill you. Literally, we don't have to fear one second because I thought I'm not going to be careless. If the CIA tells me not to go, it's just like a doctor. I'm not going. I'm not going to be foolish and say, ah, God will take care of me, right? If I got a warning, I'm not going. But I didn't have to have security in the U.S. I didn't worry about starting my car. I didn't worry about my family being kidnapped because I knew God's got a plan for all of us and God's plan is going to take care of us. And it's just like Daniel and the lions. Then is that pretty scary? Yes. Am I going to pray a whole lot more? Yes. Am I going to fear? No, because God's going to take care of it. Look how it continues. Verse 31. Many in the crowd believed him and said, when the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man is done willing. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. So the chief priest and the Pharisees sent the temple police to arrest him. So it gets even more serious. They tried to grab him. They couldn't grab him, so they sent him to arrest him. Until God's ordained time for you, until it is God's ordained time for you to step into heaven. You're perfectly safe and secure regardless of the dangers around you or the threats to you. The lesson I just taught you is we should not fear until it's God's ordained time. And if it's God's ordained time, that means the things we fear about not being done are going to be okay because it's still on God's timetable. Look at verse 33. Then Jesus said, I'm only with you for a short time, but I'm going to the one that sent me. You'll look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said to another, to, to one another, where does he intend to go so that we won't find him? Once again, Jesus is speaking on a spiritual level. They interpret it on a physical level because their idea is if he's in Israel, we can find him. He must be going somewhere outside of Israel so we can't find him. Look how it continues. They say in verse 33, uh, no, sorry, verse 35, he doesn't intend to go to the dispersion that's outside of Israel among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, does he? 
What is this remark he made? You will look for me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. What this is a picture of is a self-fulfilled prophecy. Because when they don't understand him where he says, I'm going where you can't go, he's saying, I'm going to heaven. And because you don't believe in me, you can't go to heaven either. He's being really exclusive. They hear this and say, we don't believe him. Is he going to go to the Gentiles? And their question became a self-fulfilled prophecy because that's exactly what happened when the gospel went to the Gentiles through Paul and the rest of the disciples to every corner of the world. Now, I want to end on this, and this is amazing because it describes the last and most important day of the festival. I told you it's a seven-day party. And on seven days, they have feasts, they eat like crazy, they drink until they're drunk, they do all kinds of fun things in the cool of autumn until the seventh, the eighth day. After the seven days of partying are over, there was a ritual that for centuries they went through as long as Jerusalem was there. And I want to describe it for you on the last and most important day. On the eighth day, they went to the Pool of Siloam. And the Pool of Siloam is down from the mount uh, where the temple complex is, down at the bottom of Mount Zion. I've drawn a picture here, a circle around where it is. If you go to Jerusalem today, that's it. That's the pool where Jesus would have gone, where the disciples would have gone, where the Jews would have gone. All the things around it were built up after Jesus. So when Jesus was there, it was a flat pool. You could go and draw water, and it was believed to be holy water. Uh, and you can also go today and see the tunnel of King Hezekiah, which is a tunnel to bring water from this pool that I've got on the picture into the, the temple complex to get water in to fill up the lavers where they would do their ceremonial washing and their ceremonial bathing to clean them because scripture said it had to come from this pool of water. So you can still see it today, but all the rocks there were not there when Jesus was there, but that little bottom pool there was there. So on the eighth day, the priests at the temple complex come down to the pool and they had eight golden jars and they fill up the eight golden jars with water and then take them back in a procession up that road where I've shown you on the, where the red line is, up to what's called the Water Gate. And the Water Gate's not a reference to Nixon, it's a reference to this ceremony of Sukkot. And they would take these eight bottles or jars of gold filled with water from the Pool of Siloam up through the Water Gate and into the temple complex. And because this was the highlight of the festival, imagine 200,000 people lining the processional, lining the pool, lining the water gate, and then those that were really, really influential could get into the temple complex, and there's tens of tens of tens of thousands in the court of the Gentiles watching this ceremony they're about to do. Once the eight priests carrying these bowls get up into the temple complex, they've got an altar that they bring out of the inner court and they bring it out into the outer court. And one at a time, they pour these vials of water out onto the earth. 
and it is a picture of we are pouring out the water of salvation to make way for the Messiah. There was references in the Old Testament of God and the living water and salvation coming through water. And so the idea of pouring out water was we are preparing ourselves for the Messiah. As they poured out all of these eight buckets of water, there'd be crowds of people yelling down to those around. They poured the first jar. Yay! Then the choir up above would sing the Hallel, Psalm 118, and they would listen. They would pour the second jar. Some uh, yellers would yell out, they poured the second jar. Yay! The crowd would sing, or the choir would sing more of the Hallel. Psalm 118, the song they're singing is, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord. It is wonderful in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You are my God. I will give you thanks. You're my God. I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. The reference to verse 22 in the Gospels and in the writings of Paul was tied back to Jesus Christ. The reason that's familiar is you've heard that used to describe Christ. So they're singing verses describing Christ, describing the Messiah as he's standing there in their midst. The last thing the priest says, the last priest, which is the high priest holding the eighth jar of gold filled with this water from the pool of Siloam, he quotes Isaiah 12.3. This is the end of the ceremony. He says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and he pours out the eighth jar. At that point, there is a, there is a minute of silence. All business stops, all movement stops, the crowd cheering stops, everybody on the temple complex stops. It is totally quiet. I have never seen this once in a movie on Jesus. If I'm a director, I'm making this because it is so dramatic. Because at this point, 200,000 people who came for this festival are totally quiet. Look what happens. Verse 37, Jesus stood up and cried out. Same word we heard earlier to mean he yells so that everybody can hear him. If anyone is thirsty... He should come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water from deep within him. That is an unbelievable moment. Total silence and the last thing is poured out. He quotes Isaiah 12, 3 about water and salvation. And Jesus says, if anyone's thirsty, he should come to me and drink. It was as clear as an audio-visual picture of who he was, of anything he ever did in ministry. And 200,000 people would have heard it or would have heard about it as the word trickled down the mountain. You're not going to believe what just happened up at the temple complex. It would have been the news for days. I want you to focus on the end because it's really easy to focus on Jesus being the well of living water. But notice what it says. Anyone who believes will have streams, plural, of living water flow from deep within him. It's not saying it's just flowing out of Jesus. 
it's saying if you come to me for living water, plural, streams of living water flow from deep within him. In other words, we, when we believe, become sources of living water. What does that mean? That means you and I are Jesus to people that don't know him. We are encouragement. We are life. Sometimes we're resources. Sometimes we're the source of good news. Sometimes we're a mechanism of healing, taking them to a doctor. Sometimes we're a mechanism for meeting a need, helping them with a physical or earthly need. It means the well of water that comes from him doesn't just satisfy us, doesn't just fill us, doesn't just give us life. It is reproduced in us to give to other people. How does this happen? He ends on this, verse 39. John editorializes and he says, he said this about the Spirit. Those who believe in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been received because Jesus had not yet been glorified. He's describing the process of the Holy Spirit inside our lives that tell us when to zig and when to zag, who to talk to, who to encourage, what ministries to volunteer for, what we need to know to encourage our kids or grandkids, what we need to know to encourage those in relationships with us. It says he gives us a source of water to give to other people. So the diagnostic is really clear. What are you giving away? To whom are you a source of living water? Who interacts with you and when they're finished interacting with you says, wow, that was so refreshing. Wow, that was so encouraging. Wow, that was so uplifting. When people walk away from you, do they react the way you react when you are parched, dry, thirsty, and you drink a nice cold glass of frozen ice water? Ah, that's great. Do people react when they walk away from you the way you react to water that way? That's the diagnostic on whether we're doing what Jesus promised he has empowered us to do. Quick little application. It's more than just the lions. And what keeps the lions away is the Holy Spirit working on God's timetable to protect us from those that want to hurt us, that want to silence us, that want to criticize us, that want to put us in places where we don't want to be. But just like with Daniel, the story doesn't end when he walks out and hugs King Darius. It's Daniel chapter 6. He's got a whole bunch more ministering to do. The story doesn't end when the lions are pacified. So whenever the challenge is that we think are the defining moments of our lives of things trying to crush us, circumstances trying to kill us, people trying to kill us, God gives us a testimony to those things so that the Holy Spirit can empower us to be cold, refreshing, invigorating water to those around him that don't know him. That's the importance. The first half of John chapter 7, Jesus isn't done. God's not done. We got the rest of chapter 7 to knock out. So if you like that, come back next week and we'll finish because John chapter 7 just gets better. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come and study your word. We thank you for this encouragement. We thank you for the mind-blowing reality of what your message was then.
and what your message is today. And we just bow down in humble adoration, thanking you for protecting us from the lions in our lives, thanking you for protecting us from circumstances we don't think we can get through, through the Holy Spirit that indwells our hearts. Make us encouraging, refreshing, invigorating voices to those around us that don't know you or don't know you as well as they should. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for the protection. Thank you for the promise. Guide us until we're back here again next week. In Jesus' name, we ask all these things. Amen. See you all next week. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study. Online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved. Thank you.